You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey, Narcotica listeners, this is Troy. This episode is going to be a little different from our normal news magazine format. Today, the three of us, me, Chris Moraff, and Zach Siegel, are going to talk about addiction, suicide, and Anthony Bourdain. The late celebrity chef and world traveler was found hanging Saturday morning, June 8th. He was 61. Today, we're going to address some of the frankly ugly speculation and misinformed debate some outspoken members of the recovery community, mostly abstinence-based, are spewing. A former heroin user in his 20s, like many former addicts, Bourdain broke from conventional thinking on sobriety and continued to drink alcohol. He often did so in public view on his television program. So speculation mounted regarding what, if any, role substance abuse may have played in his death. On June 22nd, many thought they had that answer. The Toxicology Report is back on famed chef uh, and author and television host Anthony Bourdain. French officials say Bourdain did not have narcotics in his body when he died. From an investigative standpoint, the only question left had been whether he had any substances in his body. Note the language in that report. No drugs, case closed, right? But as I tweeted later that day, the mere absence or presence of a mood-altering substance explains little about how that drug may have affected an individual. Before we dive in, we should, we should kind of give some context to this problem. Um, the CDC released a pretty big report recently uh, that showed suicides are up 30% since 1999. In 2016, uh, nearly 45,000 lives were lost to suicide. Um, this is a big problem in the United States. It is a problem that affects all of us. It, we talked about this a little bit in episode one. Anne Case and Angus Deaton called it deaths of despair. It's, it's not a very talked about issue in the United States, even though it's killing a lot of people. And just because a couple celebrities like Kate Spade and now Bourdain have recently died by suicide... I mean, it, it gets people talking, but I still don't know if people understand, like, how vast and how serious this problem is. Like, among, like, our age group, like, ages 15 to 34, like, suicide is the second leading cause of death. And I'm pretty sure overdose is, is number one. So it's like our generation like is fucking dying in our prime years of living. So why don't we listen real quick to a snippet from the CDC's June 7th press conference on this topic. Nearly all states had increasing suicide rates between 1999 and 2016, and 25 states had rate increases of more than 30%. Suicide is often attributed solely to a mental health concern, but according to our data, fewer than half of the people who died by suicide had a known mental health condition. Our research found that those people who died by suicide and did not have a mental health condition previously diagnosed were somewhat more likely than those with a mental health condition to struggle with relationship problems or loss, other life stressors, and experience recent or impending crises. But very importantly, 
These circumstances were likely to occur in all people who died by suicide, regardless of whether or not they had a diagnosed mental health condition. I suppose it's hard to make, you know, read into that without getting very granular and, and sort of finding out who these people are, what they're, what's going on existentially in their lives. Um, we're in a time in America where an epidemic of hopelessness is not necessarily surprising or even necessarily pathological. There's a lot of things to be hopeless about. Um, the response to that in ending one's own life is sort of, you know, where the big question comes in. I mean, I, I think, like, we can think about this in a bunch of different ways. And, and, you know, we think of suicide typically as, like, an individual act that, you know, has the context and circumstances of one's entire life factoring in and ultimately leading up to that. And with this many people doing it and this many people across different demographics and races and geography and socioeconomic status, like because so many people are doing it, it's the we, we can we can probably talk about it at like a community or population level without diving into the specifics of every single person who did it. I mean, like Bourdain and Kate Spade had objectively really successful lives and, you know, economic hardship clearly is not driving them to suicide, whereas in West Virginia, the guy who lost his job to a robot who has to go home and tell his family that I have I'm I'm not the breadwinner anymore and by the way a robot is doing my job, like where's your dignity in that? And like to feel that you're alive in a time that doesn't appreciate you, that you have no place in society, that the job that once afforded you a decent middle-class living where you could have kids and buy a house and go on vacations, like that doesn't exist anymore. And so obviously, like I do think the idea that the future is grim and that opportunities aren't ahead of you, I think is probably a factor for a lot of people. We have to look at the root cause of why so many people in the States are feeling this depression or feeling these ideas about suicide. And that goes back to what we were talking about with the deaths of despair. Um, there is something sick in our society and some people feel like there's no other option but to check out. There is something that is, there is something that, that brings somebody from ideation to ending their own life that is an extreme, it's not just flipping a switch, it's like jumping a chasm as far as I'm concerned. And, and that is a mystery to me. I guess I've always been fascinated with what makes, what, what is it about a person that one person will persevere and another person will give up, you know? But I agree, there's, there's the death, this idea that there are deaths of despair is certainly one narrative. But people are not just killing themselves because of despair. Yeah, suicide can often be impulsive. Um, and a lot of it sometimes has to do uh, with 
a shifting identity or feeling um, like you're a burden on other people or feeling like you've lost your sense of purpose. Um, it's easy for the living to project motivation on people. Um, and especially with high profile people like celebrities, um, we humans have this tendency to want to create a narrative that is that is easy to understand, uh, and we project that onto other people. The thing that, that really got me angry about this and really wanting to talk about this is the response from the recovery community sort of speculating and projecting all this bullshit onto Bourdain. So, so here's Mary Carr. So she's a writer, she's a memoirist, she's a poet, she is sober through AA, she's kind of religious. Like, I think she's a fantastic memoirist. Like, so she wrote Cherry and Lit and The Liar's Club. And I read one of her books when I was in rehab. Like, she is really, really, really good. But so here's what she said in a tweet. Um, Watching him drink on screen was like watching a slow motion car crash. He looked so desperate for every shot. I couldn't watch after a while. And I'm like, what, what fucking show are you watching? Like, I'm not seeing a guy like shaking like a desperate fiend on CNN, uh, begging for, for drinks at, at the dinner table. Like, like, I, I just don't see it. And to hear uh, Carr sort of go on and on about how the fact that Bourdain, because he did heroin and coke in his 20s, and, you know, later in his life is drinking, and we see him smoke pot in, like, Uruguay and Amsterdam, hearing her kind of, like, hand-wringing and finger-wagging about this was just, like, just so fucking infuriating to me. Yeah, I can relate um, to that, Zach. I mean, it, it's it, it's like we, we've developed a narrative in this country, and we have the 12-step rehab industry to thank for it, that addiction is a demon. It is a demon. They talk about your demons, that your, your addiction is doing push-ups in the parking lot while you're off getting married and, you know, having your children and, you know, going to run marathons or whatever it is people do. Um, and the idea of a demon, you know, it is, is an entity, you know, an evil entity that is, is sort of possessing one, which makes it impossible to, when you're trapped in that framework, it's impossible to view somebody like Anthony Bourdain through the eyes of someone like Mary Carr without seeing his demon, you know, this imaginary demon that the framework we as a society, mostly because we lacked any better framework, have placed on, 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 on substance abuse and addiction. Chris, you talk about how we don't have this better framework. So my question to you is what, what, what would be a better framework for talking about addiction and mental illness rather than personifying it in this, uh, you know, monkey on your back kind of way? In my, in my belief, and, and in many experts' beliefs, we have to start viewing substance abuse as a continuum of behavior. Um, 
One of the problems is that is that substance use has been defined through the criminal justice system, right? So if somebody wraps their car around a tree and they happen to be drunk when they did it, they're probably going to be pegged an alcoholic and sent into a diversionary program that requires them to go to classes and AA meetings. Maybe they were just drinking too much and wrapped their car around a tree, right? Because the criminal justice system has defined drug use, it's always pushed into the spectrum of disorder, addiction, alcoholism, um, which leaves little room for the vast gray area in between. Was Anthony Bourdain a problem drinker? I honestly don't know, but I, I can probably say with a, a certainty that if he was a problem drinker, it was unrelated to his heroin addiction in his 20s. And it was unrelated to his suicide. Most likely, yeah. But I guess one good place to start would just be to listen to Bourdain in his own words describing his drinking, rather than try to narrate it for him. I think uh, generally in times of uh, stress, uh, I start drinking whiskey when I'm feeling, you know, sentimental, uh, either bad about the world or good about the world. Uh, generally, like four o'clock in the afternoon at an old man bar is the perfect time for me to be drinking whiskey. I like to get, it's a drink that makes me philosophical. You know, it's not like boo party kind of a thing. No, I want to, I want to sit down at a old man bar, watch the dust motes floating in the, in the fading light coming through the window, maybe, you know, put some Tom Waits on the jukebox. Well, so, well, so like, like, like the, the popular notion of addiction for someone like Mary Carr or someone who went to like a, a, a sort of hardline 12-step rehab is that addiction is a chronic progressive disease And unless you treat it, you know, it's fatal and you're going to wind up in jail, institutions or death. And Bourdain's death just confirms their belief that and and Mary Carr says this like explicitly that he was an untreated alky. Like that's what she says. And and who fucking knows if Bourdain was an alcoholic and it's just so frustrating that because a guy is drinking beers and having wine with dinner and looks uh, and appears to be socially drinking around meals and with people in good company and producing excellent TV and commentary and conversation is all erased because he was drinking. And that's the problem. You know what I mean? Like, and it's when the it's the, hoob, it's the hoobers of Americans, you know. I mean, it's like AA is a is a is a quintessentially American institution. I remember when I got clean, like I'm from an Italian family, and going to a Sunday dinner at my grandma's, a wine glass was put in front of me with wine. Like it was never even considered that that was part of a problem. It's culturally the idea that mood-altering substances are always demonized and certainly certain cultural dynamics around alcohol um, and the way AA you know AA was founded by middle-class white males that were mostly Christian um, it's a very very narrow view and so yeah you're right Zach I mean it's it's like it it is it is diminishing to to say that he was an untreated alcoholic because he enjoyed alcohol. 
just because he had a problem with another substance many years ago. I mean, it, it's it's so simplistic that it's hard to believe anybody still buys it. That is such an American worldview, and it's toxic. It's weird because, you know, the, the Puritans were kicked out of Europe, and they came here, and they brought their, like, this, this draconian view of mood-altering substances. You know, like, it, it goes back to prohibition where, you know, any amount of alcohol is bad. Um, you know, Mormonism is a, an American institution um, that says even caffeine is bad for you. It's very extreme, and this is why when we develop pharmaceuticals, um, we can't have pharmaceuticals that have uh, euphoria. Um, using opioids is, has a whole stigma attached to it because getting using opioids can make you feel high. And there's a lot of stigma against medical marijuana as well because... Marijuana get, can can give you a high. Um, there, there's this whole prevailing attitude that any kind of mood altering substance is immediately is immediately harmful. And like, I just want to talk briefly about like what Bourdain has actually said about his own addiction and shit. He he did a a Reddit AMA, and someone asked him. You openly admit to being an ex-addict, and plenty of ex-addicts can't drink at all because they, they, yeah, th- th- this guy's saying, like, people who have past addictions, like, give it all up, and they go abstinent, and they don't drink. And he responded, I am a very unusual case. You are correct. Most people who kick heroin and cocaine have to give up everything. Maybe, because my experiences were so awful in the end, I've never been tempted to relapse. I would challenge one thing he said, and that is that he is a very rare case. Um, Oh, exactly. He's not. He's not rare at all. The narrative (laughs) is that he is a rare case. Exactly. That is absolutely not a rare case. Yeah, and and I think, like, the the, the context and sort of, like, the cultural narrative is really what's dominating this conversation about Bourdain. Like... People who got sober through AA and the 12 steps just don't have the, the context of seeing someone who had an addiction early on in their life and then use socially later in their life. Like, we just don't see or hear that story enough. God forbid anyone in this country feels an ounce of pleasure. Like, period. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is produced by Christopher Raff, myself, Troy Farah, and Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is John Ahrens. You can learn more about us at narcocast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an idea about a future episode or some weird drugs in the mail or something. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Search for Narcotica. And if you have iTunes, please rate us five stars and subscribe and tell all your friends about us. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash narcotica.